the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, go condition here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, on the... What is today? I lost track of the time. The days. I think it's the 17th. 17th? Could be. I think so. No, it's the 16th. Is it the 16th only? Oh, good. It's the 16th. Right. Okay. Of August. Oh, geez, we're already halfway through August. Yes, sad. Very. We're with my friends Susan Demeter St. Clair and Robert Brandstetter, who have both been on the show... We couldn't uh, find any place quiet to do this, so we're in a quiet, relatively quiet park. Relatively. Rel- yeah, relatively. relatively. The keyword there. I don't even know how much background noise there's going to be. I, I really don't. But I thought it was important enough that we could just hang out and talk. Um, we should go in that church. Then it'd be really echoey. And then the priest would come and tell us to leave. Maybe not. Hmm? Maybe not. Maybe? Maybe they'll listen in or join in. <laughs> Yeah. No, we'll stay out here. I don't want. To, I don't want to impose on people's personal, private space. Well, a church isn't really private space, but no. it is the churches. We could claim we're lost souls. We are kind of. <laughs> I don't have to claim that. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
It's true. <laughs> looking for divine intervention. The last 20 minutes or 30 minutes we've been sitting eating and like every time we come to a set subject, we keep thinking, uh, somebody says, oh, we ought to save the recording. So now yeah. all of our good ideas are spent. Have to make new ones. No, we already talked about that. <laughs> Let's yeah. just talk about like, you know, crazy UFO people that are annoying. <laughs> Let's not descend. <laughs> descend, please. <laughs> so I um, I got a nice trip to Canada, courtesy of the East Coast Paraconference, and I thought I'd stop in Toronto, where my two friends I just mentioned live, or at least close. Susan lives in Toronto, mm -hmm. and you live what about an hour out? About an hour and a half out. Wow, that's like me driving to Santa Barbara, which is not, it's not a fun, quick drive. It's kind of a long drive. It's dedication, Greg, is what it is. Thank you so much yeah. for coming out here every day that I'm here. That's kind of scary. Rare opportunity. I guess. I mean, if any of you guys came to L.A. or nearby, I'd probably, if, you, if one of you was staying in Santa Barbara, I'd just go there every day. And then Paraglide. Um. <laughs> Plus, it's a beautiful drive. I mean, is the, Pacific, it? the Pacific Coast Highway, yeah. Yeah, but that's only, on. the that's only in the last, like, half hour. The rest of it, you're just driving through Southern California and sub suburbs, um, a lot of it. It's still pretty. It is. I like California. Especially, I, I, it's a lot prettier if you don't live there. Because people, I remember people, uh, the, the big joke at the para, para, Paramania was everybody wanted to go to the tar pits. And I said, why do you want to see a bunch of tar? <laughs> it's a thing plus Danny Trejo's is there the taco place isn't it in the La Brea Tar Pits uh, it's, there's a, well, it's like a place it's right near there yeah there's a there's a taco place that just opened it's on La Brea yeah yeah Danny Trejo's that was on my, my bucket list though so I went to the one in Hollywood when I yeah, was there yeah he's got a he's got um, donut place and a couple of taco places right now and they're so good and you don't them, mind that I'm plugging Danny Trejo's tacos, No, you can plug anything you okay. want. And one of them's next door go, to, the, go the, to Danny Trejo's. the poutinery place, which I couldn't believe I saw in Hollywood. And it's right next door to where I used to go have um, lunch and talk to Bill Moore. There's what? a poutinery place right next. Oh. The, guy, the one with the guy's, like, like, that, like, chubby guy's face with the glasses. It's like some huge chain in Canada. Well, it's like Hollywood uh, South now, right? You even have David's Tea. That's a Canadian thing. Canadian tea is it yeah and there's like three of them now in LA so because they call Toronto Hollywood North so I yeah. think Hollywood must be Toronto South yeah because we're kind of the same right we're I kind of we're that. similar there's there's similarity yeah. Robert was driving me into uh, town and I noticed that like there were people from all different backgrounds here I just saw them all walking around and doing stuff and I said this kind of feels like home actually yeah um, it's just slightly more civilized well, Toronto likes to claim that they are the most diverse city on planet Earth, which I'm sure is not true. I'm sure L.A. is far more diverse than us, but we like to hold that moniker up for ourselves. Yeah. yeah. So what was the best idea, Greg, that you heard at the conference in terms of new ideas? Or were there any new ideas? Not that I can remember. Well, not I don't know about new to me. I guess to the audience, a lot of them were new. Um, but for yourself, do you find that people are still rehashing the same old, same old? Or is anybody yeah, launching well, they into new territory? Yeah, kind of I mean, I, I, I did some of that, too. You know, you have to do it. Um, 
Brian talked about different triangles around the world, like uh, the Bridgewater Triangle, the Bermuda Triangle, and the Dr Devil's Triangle, or Dragons, sorry. Um, and he found a couple other ones I'd never heard of. So I suppose that's new stuff, um, and just kind of more, what's the idea of a, of a triangle? Why do people think that there's a triangle? It's just, it's a human construct for an area where a lot of weird stuff's going on. Not as ostensible, what's the word? Uh, um, objective triangle. It's something we put on it based on our experience. So he did point that out. And Micah did Magic Mysticism of the Molecule, where he's um, talking about um, occult uh, practice, uh, the paranormal, and uh, the occult, uh, and sorry, and um, psychedelics or entheogens or whatever people want to call them. So that. To me, that's old news and old information, but to most people, it's not. I mean, I think you, you both notice it's things that we've been talking about for years, or our friends have been talking about, suddenly it's a craze and everybody thinks this is a new thing. And I think that's what a lot of people think about um, the, not a lot, some people think about the reframing the debate, especially that reviewer from Agonia that said, uh, we've been doing this for years. <laughs> here, over here in England and Europe. And you know what? I agree with them, but we didn't publish the book in England and Europe. It was published here mostly. It was kind of, it was international, but um, most of the writers were American, American and Canadian. Yeah, but we were building on a lot of that. And it's, it's not yeah, it like we were... Yeah, it pushes forward too. Yeah, we, it's not like any of us pretended that, you know, oh, this idea from 1975 is our own. Like we were all citing our sources um, and, and often just building upon so I, I, I don't think I don't think he was fair. I think he was just bitter and irrelevant. <laughs> That's what I think. That's what I think. You just you know, haters gonna hate. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, it's a yeah. That's player hate. I always yeah, say. Yeah, player hate. <laughs> but you know, if you got player hate, go out and do something. You know, Magoni has been doing it for years, but it's you know, it's after a while it becomes a slog, and of course, I don't know. You know, it becomes very insular and I, I would rather not this be insular and I'm sure everybody in the book particularly Robbie does not want that yeah but I'm, I'm all for constructive criticism but there was no constructive criticism no, it wasn't. that was all just you know arrogance and uh, you know oh I, I'm gonna just completely discount I don't even think the, he read the book I don't think he read the book he just he just kind of made assumptions and wrote stuff yeah. If you've that ever, maybe two people read. Yeah, if you've ever read a other than us written a book, <laughs> you find reviews where they say things where you think, did they even read it? Yeah, they'll say things. This wasn't even addressed. It's like there was a whole chapter about that. What do you mean it wasn't addressed? Just that kind of stuff. So I think that's rampant. Um, although if you don't read something, I don't really think you have a a, a right to criticize it. Yeah. You know, either either read the thing and criticize or shut up. One of the two. Yeah. And you know what? This turned almost into one of the... Uh, were you on the first roundtable I did for the on the show for the no, book? No, Good. no. Good. So this will be one of them. Yes. Okay. We don't even, but we don't have to stick to it. I mean, we just naturally started talking about it because we're all in it. And it's how yes. we met. Yeah. Although I yeah. met you a little before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I met yeah. him in the Paracast forums. I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that was before the book happened. Oh, well before. Yeah. Well before, yeah. Um... And I think Robbie brought you up, and I said, yeah, I know him. Yeah, we, we've been talking quite a lot. And you'd been on my show even, I think. Yep. Yeah, a couple of times. Yep. Just a couple of times by yourself and once with Miguel, I think. That's right. 
Yeah. So, and then Susan has to come back because every time I talk to anybody like Susan, it's like, well, we'll continue this six or <laughs> ten hour conversation next time. <laughs> I guess I have a lot to say. No. Yeah. Anybody that's interesting to me to have on the show always has a lot to say. If you don't have anything to say, then why have somebody on an interview? Um, and I'm learning, you know, I, I think, I hope I'm learning while I'm doing these things. That, that's what's the reason for doing a show is um, I think the best reasons are one to learn something and two to disseminate information that people can use and and three and maybe even more important is to make connections and have people make their own connections and maybe contact the guest or whatever because it's how, how, how ideas evolve um, by people like my mom said people make this world so get to know people you can't do everything by yourself you just can't so yeah. I'd be curious to know in Micah's uh, presentation, because to me, the unique piece about the UFO experience or any paranormal experience is its hallucinatory nature. Mm -hmm. and, and I think everybody's very struck by it. And anybody who's done hallucinogens knows it's a life-altering experience. It, it shakes you, rattles you. You see and experience things you've never experienced before at all. And uh, that hallucinatory notion of going to another world or into an altered space seems to be the definitive way of thinking about a profound anti-materialist impossible experience right so where did he go did he go anywhere interesting with that or try to make those connections or even look at that notion of what's happening to that individual witness when they're having these altered experiences as far as i remember it was kind of overview of these are important issues that people haven't really thought of um, in uh, in the paranormal world because people are more interested in the object than the subject um, and I think that's what his main point was that we you know we've got to recognize that these things that, that altered states are that the, the paranormal experience is an altered state how do you induce an altered state how have people done it for over thousands of years and what value is it and he thinks there's quite a bit in it and for people that have never heard of such a thing or are resistant to it or whatever, I think it's a good thing to repeat. Um, as far as uh, going deeper, like you said, I think he does that in his book, but he couldn't really do that in a talk. Right. You know, yeah. it's just kind of like, look, here's what I'm presenting. This is what I would like you to take away from this talk. Not, you know, s specific cases. Or, you know, like he, he kind of mentioned Rick Strassman and he um, mentioned Terrence McKenna. And I did in my talk too, but I went a little deeper in the way that I understand them and appreciate them um, from from my point of view for what I was trying to argue with which was basically his one like you know uh, why are there similarities and what can we learn from this why are there similarities in an altered state to a paranormal experience and what can we learn from this I think uh, there's instead more, of yeah. you know oh my <laughs> instead of separating them mm. I, I think that it is an altered state I think that the altered state facilitates the experience, whether it's through hallucinogens or through meditation or through, even if you talk to a lot of these people, they, they see UFOs or they see paranormal, experience paranormal things when they're in that slightly altered state or a beta or even theta state. So they might be chopping vegetables or vacuuming or, or, do, or even driving. You know when you're driving and you kind of just lose yourself and you're, you're oh, well, I'm all of a sudden here. The, these are the states of mind people tend to be in. This is what I have found in my research talking to people. They all seem to be in a somewhat slightly altered state. 
Um, you, we, I, I'm going to go into ghosts just because ghosts are on my mind lately. Um, when, when you hear often about these people that give you these reports, they're often security guards and they're working late at night. They might be tired. And, and this is when they hear the sort of the strange disembodied footsteps or they see an apparition or something along those uh, lines and then you think about it well these people are, are usually they're they're up way past when they should be or in, they're in a different sort of you know state of mind altogether then uh, then when you're when you're on when you're in that sort of you know when you're in that that mindset where it's not altered where you're like right in that alpha state of mind I think that it, it's the altered state that is facilitating whatever it is that's going on, whether it be ghosts or UFOs or something like that. It's a carrier wave. Yeah, that's my, my, just, my thought anyway. So here's a question I've got for you on that, because I'm very interested in kind of categorizing the experiences now, and what's the nature of um, the witness at, at the point of, of contact. And, and it seems to me that there's, maybe we could separate it and talk about the two different kinds of contact experiences mm -hmm. with paranormal. One of them being the ones that you're talking about where people are already predisposed perhaps because of their situation or environment or, you know, the meditative component of their work or their drive or whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah. Um, that, that there's kind of a lull there. And I guess my question I would ask about that is what, what do you feel is taking place in such moments? Like with the security guard, it's late at night, you're in a different you know mode of thinking you're used to this notion of being alone is that what's informing the mind that causes it to drift or allow itself to kind of pull out of its file bank something that allows it to maybe look at their environment differently and i, and I would separate that completely from those all of a sudden you turn around the corner and boom there's the ufo i i think that in that case like i like i'm just obviously i'm guessing here but I think what is facilitating it is something known as like the lizard brain or that, that portion of our mind that is controlling the breathing and other things that we're not even really thinking about. Because for the most part, these experiences seem to be very spontaneous. Uh, and again, they, they seem to be almost in, in, in some sort of an altered state, even if it's just a mild altered state. You know, like people think, oh, you know, altered state, well, the person was too sleepy or they're in that hypnagogic state. But mm -hmm. even those states, too, people have a lot of experiences or they report experiences then. But even like, you know, the person that sees the large triangle in the sky and they're just driving down the low, lonely country road and all of a sudden this thing appears. But uh, and I think I'd mentioned it before, but even then when you're driving and you're, you're used to driving the same route all the time, you can get into that sort of mode where you don't even realize it, but you're slightly altered, just slightly. And I am just sort of guessing that maybe in that state that something occurs that facilitates the experience. Something within the individual. Within, so the, within the individual, for sure, because I, for me, I'm concentrating on that tangible thing, which is the, the experiencer. That, that we, this is the tangible part of it. The rest of it, we don't really have any evidence really beyond the witness and what they're describing as, as what has happened to them. So I think it's important that we sort of, you know, look at what's going on with the person, whether physiological change, mental change, emotional state, circumstance these are things that and, and greater context of the world they're living in these are things that usually we don't concentrate on because we're thinking of the apparition or the structured ufo we're not 
you know, that, that, this is my argument anyways, and UFOs yeah. are framing the debate. I'm just... Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the arguments in there are from yeah. more witness-centered stuff. Yeah. Because and certainly yours was. Yeah, because that's the tangible thing. Is, is This is a human experience to me. This is... Human beings are describing these things, and they have been for, you know, since recorded history in, in different ways. So if we look at those, and I, I like this idea of thinking about these as two different experiences, that notion of that individual who's in some kind of lulled, predisposed state, hypnagogic state, where perhaps the brain is rambling, <clears throat> maybe facilitates a kind of imagistic experience that is set for that individual. When we, could, when we think of the hallucinatory experience, we think of set and setting, and so th those things seem to be there uh, at work within such situations. And I'm wondering if we can separate that individual witness experience and, and talk about the nature of imagery that flows from there as perhaps being a more internalized experience versus, and what I would contrast this with, is experiences where you've got two witnesses present and all of a sudden something has happened where the two of them are driving and they turn the corner and the UFO is literally parked right there and they stop and they're, they're witnessing it and watching something utterly profound unfold and they're not in that predisposed setting mode at all. Two people are sharing something and I'm wondering if that leans us towards thinking about the nature of what's being experienced as being, I don't want to say more present, but something along the lines of perhaps being more present in our external world that any other witness that was there would also be able to access that and, and, and maybe separating those kinds of experiences from that internal set setting lulled kind of uh, experience. They do appear to be two different types of experience. I, I will say that um, with two person or multiple witness experiences, they, they tend to be more rare than, than those who report the singular. But with those that seem to have some sort of um, like a physicality to them or two people are participating because I, I also study parapsychology. I take a more of a parapsychological look at it. Perhaps there's telepathy that is involved. Perhaps it is the two individuals that are co-creating together. Um, I, I don't really know. I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm guessing at those, but I do feel that there is, yes, there is some physicality in the outer world. There is something objective to some of these these reports and some of these experiences as well as the internal I don't think it's only internal because uh, I'm just kind of interested in because we always want to talk about what's the nature of the external stimulus and we're you know many people are very hooked on notions like the ETH or the dead yeah. coming back to visit us and, and yeah. very specific dead from specific DPH. places yeah, DPH <laughs> so I, I'm wondering if we can uh, maybe say something more about maybe even credibility uh, and kind of a concretization of what that external stimulus is when we've got two or more people witnessing something mm -hmm. versus that internalized imagistic experience where we might be able to point towards, you know what, a lot of that is a very internal event. And maybe the external stimulus becomes far more elusive and indescribable. And as you know, I'm thinking of Greg's co-creation hypothesis that if you were to break that down even further, would you break it down, Greg, into notions that there's degrees of internalization that is naming the experience more often. So maybe that individual is bringing far more to the dance versus you've got two or more people witnessing something all of a sudden and maybe they're not as responsible for that and the external stimulus now is suddenly more weighted, more concretized, more present and, and we can have maybe different discussions about the nature of the external stimulus that way. The minute somebody, 
I'll just say yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would, the first thing I think about that is the minute that one of the other one of the people in the in the of the two or the group mentions the incident to the other people, they start talking about it. It starts breaking down into a co- more co-creation than it was before they said in a set of work. Um, and then, there may be other things going on subconsciously, telepathically, whatever you want to call it, but um, I don't know how to get to that moment before anybody says anything to somebody else or each other. You pointed that out to me, like the telling the story um, kind of takes something that was ephemeral and kind of locks it. Yeah, it builds it. It, 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 it authorizes it. And I'm thinking now of like Jeff Kripal's work with the authors of The Impossible. The minute you start retelling it, you're authorizing it. It's happened. It's real. Mm-hmm. You know? So um, there's this notion of internal narratives, perhaps, then, versus external narratives? Yeah. yeah. And the internal narrative is something an artist might put on a canvas or film or whatever. And the, you watch a David Lynch, you're watching Twin Peaks now? That's an internal yes. narrative. Yes. Yes. Um, but as soon as somebody takes as soon as they name something and start using language you're starting to lock it into a language based way of thinking about it Um, and that collapses a lot of the experience I think I don't know how you would express an internal experience like that before putting it in language you're already putting in language when you're thinking about it so you know what would be the best way you know when you when you come and when you see somebody the first time when they before they've even said anything or you're the first investigator on the scene, what do you do? Could you please, um, here's a piece of paper, here's a pencil, and some colored pencils, and I'm going to leave for about an hour. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be a weird one. I don't know. I mean, is, is that that still seems like sledgehammer to kill a fly thing to me, but it may be a little bit closer than saying, how big was it, what color was it, what, what aliens were they? And then when it comes to the multiple witnesses. It sounds totally insane what I just said, but something in that area. Yeah, no, I think it makes it makes sense. But I, I was just going to say that with the multiple witnesses, sometimes you have cases, whether they be UFOs, whether they be ghosts. I'm not so much into cryptids, but probably there too, where you might have like five people at a scene, and two people will see one thing and describe it almost exact. Oh, that's, that's and then, happened many times. And then yeah. another time, and then another witness will see something else. Um, you know. I, I, and, and then the other, a couple other people on the scene will say, oh, I saw nothing. Yeah. You know, so that too, what, what does that say about the, the nature of the experience? It's, it's that it's, uh, it know. falls between places that we have for categories and language. Did I address yes. your question there, Robert? I, I think you had, Jeff. Because I feel like I only scratched a little bit of it. Well, I'm kind of, like I said, I'm very interested now. Because you're way how, ahead of me in what you're thinking about on this at this, at, 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 in this moment. Well, I'm thinking about how do we kind of concretize the discussion. And I think to do that, maybe, you know, we're used to this, you know, from Heineck onwards, this notion of categorizing experiences, defining them in different ways. And I'm thinking quite a bit from your co-creation perspective. I know that's something you and I shared a lot in, in early discussions. And it just strikes me yeah. that there's an individual experience alone that takes place that is very internalized. And that allows for a lot of loose ends. And very difficult, perhaps, to translate all of that loose, internalized experience into something that's concrete, though, traditionally speaking, we've taken all of those stories and lumped them all together with all the other stories and called them one thing, and traditionally, that's been the ETH event. And I think it's really important that we start contrasting maybe the history 
of the nature of human perception and human experience when it comes to paranormality in order to, if we want to talk more specifically and articulately about an external stimulus, then maybe we need to start defining the nature of the experiences in different ways. So I would separate some of the great faded disc stories that I've heard of one individual alone on the highway that matches what Susan's talking about, people being in that lulled micro-sleep zone, hypnagogic zone. Perhaps you're far more likely to have a phenomenal experience that is an internal event. And I would contrast that with, you know, one a friend of mine just talked to me about when he was driving home from Cub Scouts with his dad and the two of them were having a nice happy conversation and turned a bend on a rural road and then literally parked beside them no less than 20 feet away uh, was an enormous classical flying saucer just hovering above the ground and the two of them are looking at this in total awe and then they're watching it slowly rise up the air they're looking at the colored lights underneath it they're seeing something well defined as an object and then it floats away quite quietly and goes off into space and the two of them come home and dad is a very kind of pragmatic and critical and skeptical man and even him he's like bereft at explaining to his, his yeah. wife this is what i saw and my friend steven narrated the yeah that's exactly what i saw too so the two of them you know did the dance of the narrative together there and kind of confirmed what they both saw but it strikes me that that experience is a very different one than the lone individual who's got you know extremely impossible wonderful story to tell and even though the nature of the story is similar i still think it's worth looking at them in different ways uh and, and maybe talking about them differently because then maybe we can talk a little bit more about who's bringing what to the dance because in that case where the two of them are by the side of the road watching the ufo nobody's bringing anything to the dance they're witnessing an impossible event that's right in front of them and I think that is a very different discussion to be had with two witnesses mm -hmm. than it is the individual who talks about driving and suddenly something happened to them and it felt like the world was right, turning right. off. And that but, sounds like yeah, there's, logic. Yeah, there's and, different types yeah. of experiences, but, but, definitely. But they were also, you were saying, they were enwrapped in conversation. Yeah, so they weren't paying attention to anything else. So. Yeah, so they were, but that's the thing. That also can put you into a slightly altered state. And, I, and what this reminds me of is um, with these ghost hunters and the ones that go out and get EVP, and how often it is that they try and put these these recorders in places where there's nobody, there's nobody around, and they're not, they don't really get anything, or they're intensely ghost hunting and they're thinking about the ghosts, and they, they put the recorder and there's nothing. But then when they sit at the end of their vigil, yeah, and they're nobody's just, looking, they're just chatting or whatever. That's when all of a sudden the ghostly voice appears when they're not thinking about it, when it's not the forefront in their mind, when they might be just chatting about, oh, you know, I, I'm hungry, I would like to get a donut or something, something mundane, something that you're, you're not on, you're not switched fully on. And I know that sometimes when I, I'm in a really good conversation, I'm like that the rest of the world fade away. I'm just, just thinking I'm that totally as we're here, I've yeah. noticing it. Uh, we, we could be on the moon extra right now. I mean I could be totally wrong, but I, I'm just I'm noticing a similar pattern between the, that sure. those two things. Yeah, I can see the comparison you're making and, and, and I think that's a, a valid one. I guess I'm just thinking from now a very kind of critical, skeptical position that a lot of individual witness events can be from a an extreme skeptics position be totally brushed aside as that's an internal narrative that's dream logic you must have fallen asleep at the wheel you had an internal experience and we know from dream studies that the things that can happen in a second inside of a dream space can be a very long extended narrative of a series of events and i think i want to contrast that possibility of it oh it's only internal 
up against the two or more siding where that's an impossible piece. The narrative is informed between two conscious people and they know they're conscious and that really then validates the nature of what they've seen in an entirely different way. It can't be discounted. There is something there. And I guess that's one of the things I want to get at in just terms of thinking about from a skeptic's critical position that there's something more valid to be talked about when you've got the two or more people there that are conscious together. Uh, and I would even extract notions of telepathy or that lull state as, as part of it in order to give more validity to the nature of the narrative that they've got to tell. I think both are, are, are valid. I think they're just, they're different. I, I think that there's, there's more that we could possibly mine from a, a two or multiple person experience versus the singular. But I do feel that they're both valid and potentially related. Great. What do you think? Is there similar validities to that individual witness event versus the two or more? I was listening to you both and um, I'm feeling very stupid today, so I, I've been listening more, but um, <laughs> uh, I tend to agree more with Susan's um, point of view that they are different animals. They should be treated differently. Um, I don't think if you're talking about an acceptance and getting other people to listen to you and to consider what you're saying, the multiple witness one may be much more helpful. Yes. Um, because, I mean, I guess there's going to be excuses and made for that one. The single witness one is, like you said, so many other factors come into play about um, state of mind, believability, you know, all these things. Um, lying. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Making yeah. things up in fabulation. This can happen also on a multiple witness, but it's a lot harder to, to mess with, um, especially if you have a thing like the Hickson and Parker thing where they left the microphone on when they were in the room together. And That's right. They basically continue their narrative and they don't sound like they're trying to make anything up. And most people point to that as kind of, it's one, it's still one of my favorite cases, but partly because of that. Yeah. yeah. And also because it's just so strange and uh, unlike a lot of the other ones. It's another one. There's, there's, there were far more outliers, I think, um, to the standard narrative before there was a standard narrative. Um, it's just like anything else. As soon as you get it, find a way to do something, things become a lot less novel. Um, and probably a lot less valuable. So one of the other features within the, the two or more piece then is about, well, what's the nature of those individuals there? And you look at Hickson and Parker, and maybe there are ways of separating those two because certainly they went on different trajectories. And I'm right. thinking also of the Dale uh, Spar yeah. uh, case because he's got mm -hmm. another police officer with him and a series of other police officers that are involved in the, in the chase as well. Yet his experience seems to be the novel one. Yeah, and and so then that that also allows us then to have this larger discussion about the nature of the witnesses, well, too, because we know that within his life, you know, he, he's deconstructing different things are taking place for himself. His whole life does go to hell after that. I mean, many police officers suffered uh, from that that piece, but he does seem to be a focal piece, and what's happening to him, even as he's describing it in the police station afterwards, it is all about him and his experience. And maybe we just don't get those other narratives because they weren't recorded from the other police officers in as great a detail immediately afterwards. Or they were witnessing his uh, incredible narrative. I well, mean, this, this happens with the poltergeist cases where there seems to be, parapsychologists tend to agree that there's always a focus person or a focal point. There's something, a person that this all seems centered around. And the rest are experiencing different things around the person. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's that one person 
And in, in, in the poltergeist cases, it tends to be somebody who is deconstructing, who is uh, having maybe a, a lot of anxiety and is unable to express it properly yeah, in the outer world. That Jeff Ritzman talks about. Exactly. Did anybody so, ever talk to Dale Smore and found out, find out what was going on in his life? I don't think anybody's interested in that beforehand. Yeah, that's that's Robert Shermer, the same thing happened. The Ashland, Nebraska one. The guy with the people with the, the flying dragon things on their mm -hmm. uniform guy, that guy. So I guess I'm wondering about that notion, like, I think that poltergeist piece is an interesting piece. I've read a lot of the poltergeist pieces, and coming from my own kind of skeptical position on it, I, I've got two things to say. I think one is that the majority of these pieces are, yes, entirely about that focused person, but I think it's about them deconstructing whether there's a madness or whatever is taking place. I'm not a big fan of the notion of them manifesting or creating things that are taking place. Uh, I, I really do feel that what's actually going on is the other people surrounding them mm -hmm. who care about these people are being wrapped up in their world. And, okay. and we know this from any individual who spent a lot of time working with either individuals in trauma and you mm -hmm. maybe don't have a good background in it or it's a loved one who's going through these traumatic experiences, you get very wrapped up in their world and you start to get the touch of the madness as well too. And I think that's when groups come together and move into groupthink territory and suddenly the nature of the poltergeist gets to be manifest in the world because everybody else is circling around somebody else's narrative and getting deeply involved and deeply worried and deeply afraid. And I think that makes everybody very prone to having odd experiences, seeing strange things, feeling strange things as a consequence. And, and I don't know how much validity I'll pull from those stories, whereas I'm far more interested in when there's a group of people or two or more people that witness something and they both have very similar things to say, that tells me, yes, there is something external that's there and that's worth talking about quite a bit because that's mm -hmm. outside of that individual. It's, it's affected them and, and altered them in a profound way, but it's very much outside of them and there is an external reality uh, that's to it. And I think those are the ones I'm much more interested in breaking down, deconstructing and talking about because it does point to an external reality that perhaps is beyond us. Absolutely. I agree with you that, that is, we should be focusing on that as well. Um, I, I posit the idea that perhaps this external reality is created from the internal, much like a, a, a tulpa. Yeah, you that's know. just what Robert was arguing against right now. Yeah, I yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I, I vacillate between the two. Yeah I, yeah, I do a lot of argument against these days because I'm always kind of thinking from that skeptical position, thinking from the what's the most likely piece, because what I really want to get at are hardcore cases yeah. that totally validated, that can't be challenged, can't be refuted, can't be said, no, nothing happened. That was only inside that person's mind. And I find myself often arguing with people who always come back at me and say, oh, you're saying it's all inside their minds. And I'm saying, no, I want to yeah. talk about the, the ones that we can't say that about. So yeah. the ones that we can, then I refer to as phenomenal narratives. Right. Now, these are great narratives. And yes, they're worth talking about. And we collect them and we can talk about maybe witness experiences and the nature of human perception in a very interesting way. But as soon as you've got a second person yeah. at work there, now it's a different animal altogether. Yeah. I guess I'm very interested in those kind of categorizations now when we talk about paranormal experience. Yeah, well, when somebody says yeah. it's all inside your mind, my first response is everything's inside That's your right. mind. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I, I guess that would be good as far as like if we're going to try and categorize is, you know, single versus multiple witnesses. And then... You know, and sometimes animals react as well, or they seem to be reacting to things, and so we can include that. 
Yes, exactly. This would be a better way of looking at things than just trying to, you know, crafts or, you know, like however well, we're you lumping wanna... them all together, yes, right? Because I think yeah. we, there's a tendency in the paranormal history to just lump everything together because of the nature of the object, and the object leads the discussion as opposed right. to the setting, subject. the witnesses, the subject. How did they lead the discussion in a different way? And can we ma yeah. maybe categorize more specifically as a result of that? Because even in like Micah's essay that's in our book, his categorizations are very object specific. Right? It really is about, you know, about proximity, right? And one thing we know about proximity, reality seems to break down even more the closer you, you get, get to whatever to you get, something that's the right. Gets to the yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I thought about when we were just eating and saying, let's save this room. I did save it. Remember when we were talking about um, uh, we were talking about uh, the finding, which I don't know if it's been replicated yet. That uh, trauma victims, there, if you're below a certain age, it changes your DNA, and that is that is passed on. So you have some of the the uh, markers for trauma victims in, yeah. in, in a generation that didn't even have the trauma happen. That's to right. Them. And I'm thinking along the lines of when, a, when an abduction researcher says, this runs through many generations. Yes. Like, is there a, is there a paranormal marker that goes on somebody's DNA? Well, and, and you know, <laughs> from below a certain age. Sure. And, and I know from my own ex history, just talking to family relatives and thinking about the generations of relatives and the history of ghost stories, because I didn't realize until after my grandparents died, how replete the history of ghost stories were within the generations. So I think from a sociological perspective, that paranormal marker seems to be more about the culture that you're raised in. Because mm. if your grandparents talk to you know, their kids about the ghost stories that they saw, what I noticed was my aunts and uncles were talking about the ghost stories that they experienced and they were passing those down. So it seems to me we pass things down culturally speaking. So that for sure I would validate. And I would separate that from what we do know biologically takes place with trauma. Uh, victims and that we have kind of marked and identified that yes intergenerationally uh, genetic markers are being passed down because of trauma and that's making people more susceptible to the nature of trauma and traumatic experiences within their lives and sets them up for a whole other you know life experience altogether but that could be true with the with the abductees which often like whether you want to believe in what is going on these people are suffering. Some of them do suffer yep. post-traumatic stress. Absolutely. So they Absolutely. would pass that down because for them, this is a very real and, and horrific experience. Well, just to qualify what the, the clinicians have identified is that these are experiences that happen between uh, children the ages of zero to three. And that between the ages of zero to three, where you're in this developmental phases, uh, DNA is still susceptible uh, to alterations development. And that's where they're seeing the deficit. And it's those children who grow up with that marker and they are genetically literally passing things down versus say the adult who suffers from PTSD, they can't pass anything down except the story itself. Okay. Uh, and, and certainly they can vicariously pass on their trauma to their children as well. Yeah. So you come yeah, home yeah. with a ghost story, uh, right. you will tell that profound story, but again, that child's above a certain age, still growing in a loving environment there. I don't think there's gonna be a biological shift, but certainly culturally and sociologically and the way that they perceive the nature of reality, they're far more likely to be really good participants or willing witnesses uh, for those paranormal events because that's just part of their family history. Where were we? Um, Multiple witnesses as yeah, opposed to single witness? That's right. And uh, talked a little bit about the deconstructing individual. Mm -hmm. um, and then we lost the tangent. Yeah.
Oh, the thing I brought up was um, change in DNA and mm -hmm. and trauma there, throughout different right. generations. Is there a paranormal marker? Yes, exactly. We, we cut that one apart. Um, so now where? <laughs> I, I don't have a list. Um, earlier when we were in the same uh, place, uh, Susan was talking about a liminal part in her life and how that seemed to pull her back into the uh, world of UFOs. Oh, yes. Um, I, with all my UFO experiences, uh, they seem to have come at some sort of turning point in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if they're related, but they certainly seem to feel like they are related. Um, and whether it's the UFO sighting or it's like synchronicities around the UFO subject, they have sort of guided me or altered sort of the direction I was on and put me on another sort of path. So I, I have since referred to my first UFO experience when I was 23 as sort of the initiation phase <laughs> um, to this, this whole sort of UFO story, which seems to be um, dominant within my life, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Can yeah. you separate that a little bit from the idea of other people who we talk about as repeaters and who often move towards contactee status, where not only are they predisposed to seeing UFOs, but they also have a special, unique relationship with them, or might even be relaying messages, you know, back to the populace there. How do you see yourself inside that notion of somebody who has repeatedly seen the phenomenon? How do you, because it's quite a rare event, like in my mind, I yes. like to think that you see something once, and that's it. I'm very interested in that witness. You see something more than once. Now I'm questioning, and I'm, I'm curious and, and suspicious. Well, in my case, I, I count really three uh, UFO events that that are pivotal not only in my life, but I really count them perhaps stronger than others that may or may not have occurred because they were all multiple witnesses and different people. Um, I don't see myself as as having some information at this point to impart to the, the world or the planet or that, that the alien other or whatever it is is, is is put me into some sort of a special category. I see what's happening as more of very individual and unique and very and highly personal. Um, like th these are things that are very personal and unique to myself as a person more than information for that it's going to guide humanity sort of thing so you don't see yourself as somebody who's been selected or, or anything like that no i don't feel that i'm i'm special so why do you think then that you're having multiple experiences and from what i've heard these are you know not just like sky experience these are pretty profound oh my goodness that's a ufo experience because i'm open to it i've acknowledged it i've made it okay in my mind um and I, I will say that between my first UFO experience as an adult at age 23 and then a later, which was in 1990, and then 11 years later I had one uh, that was much more spectacular and closer range, I would say, and longer in duration. Um, during that time frame in between my 20s and 30s, I, I sort of started doubting myself. I kind of felt really disillusioned with the UFO community. 
and I kind of found sort of comfort, I guess, or, or, or sort of a, a community within the skeptical movement. And I kind of stayed with that until I had this other UFO experience that sort of had to, I, I guess it guided me away from the skeptical side. It sort of reaffirmed in my mind that this is, this is real, this is happening, I just, I, I don't know what it is. Um, so in that way it affected me very deeply and personally, if that makes sense. Would you say that there's been, I guess, shifts then, progressive shifts, the more experiences you've had? Have you started looking at your relationship to the UFO experience then in different ways? Yes, absolutely. Uh, as I progress, um, as, a, as not just as an experience, but as a researcher, uh, I'm authorizing, I, I feel, these experiences. I'm, I am making them legitimate in my own mind because I, to me, they are real. They are happening and I'm allowing them to happen. Why, that was loud. That was very loud. Um, but what do you mean I, you're allowing them to happen? I, 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 I am not, I'm not trying to, to rationalize them anymore. I'm accepting them. Okay. I'm accepting that they have happened, and I'm open to them, and I'm willing to have more, not negative ones, positive <laughs> ones. And I, I, I write these things down, these notions in a book that I keep, um, when I'm observing synchronicities, uh, and, and I feel that I, I am allowing it. I'm allowing it to happen, and therefore it's happening for me. You if know, that makes any sense yeah. to you. You know, a lot of people talk about the experience of fear that goes along with uh, witnessing an event. And I, I know when I saw the two UFOs, I was completely petrified, as was the other person uh, there beside me. Would you say that you're less fearful? now and thinking about the nature of it and i'm curious to know is how far will you let those allowances go will those go right up to seeing a humanoid come out of a ship one day how much are you willing to accept i am willing to accept all that is not negative or paranoid or anxiety producing uh i how don't do i think lies with you I don't, I don't really know because I, I had a lot of experiences as a child with what I thought were ghosts, but they were more like, right, like little humanoids. And at the time, I was very scared, and all of a sudden this large wolf creature appeared that talked to me and sort of chased away or got rid of these little humanoids, and I felt protected. And later on, as, as a young adult and, and studying psychology, I sort of came to accept that I was the wolf. I created the wolf, and therefore I became my own protector. Mm. So I feel that to a certain degree, I can handle these things. So I'm 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 open to them. I'm I've I've seen apparitions. I've had all sorts of strange experiences, and, and, and yet I yet you were in a skeptical society for a while. I was because I was finding comfort in it. Ah. I it, there's comfort in that way of thinking. Because you, you're, you're and, and then real, I realized later, because as I explored more my spirituality, which is also colored by the UFO phenomena, that what I needed, what I was finding with the skeptics is a way to ground myself, to stay within this reality and to, I just, I guess, find a, a little less stressful way of dealing with my own experiences. But the 2001 UFO, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't, I felt like a hypocrite. 
I felt like I, I, I had to acknowledge this because I knew it was real. There was other people with me. I wasn't alone. And it, that, that was one way that it sort of shifted my life. So, you know, the ghosts, in, in my paradigm, ghosts and the dead, that, that's not going to harm me. I'm far more petrified of the notion of running into the flying saucer and, and humanoids come out and want to take me somewhere uh, there. Where are you with that? Would you qualify that then as a negative paranoid event or would you be accepting of such things? Well, it, it depends on what they what they would want to do. Like, I, I mean, I was very... medical torture, you know. Well, medical torture <laughs> and that I'm not going to accept. And maybe if medical torture is part of it, maybe I'm just going to create another large wolf or a dragon or some other mystical creature that's going to take them out. I'm not, I don't have that fear anymore. And I guess it's based on the idea that I had these experiences as a child. They were extremely real to me. They were solid looking. They were 3D sort of beings that perhaps other people later on in life kind of pointed out, well, maybe they were little aliens. And I don't know, maybe they were, but... I can say that those experiences stopped with this insertion of this protector. And in my mind, I, I still accept the fact that I am more likely was that protector. It was me. I was manifesting this. Yeah. Sounds like the story I told about people said, well, how did you stop feeling paranoid and having all this stuff happen? And I said, I got tired of it. Yeah. I got tired of feeling paranoid and scared. So I decided my model right now is... There's nothing going on, unless it's something really obvious. I'm not being killed or threatened by anybody, so what do I have to be paranoid about? And that stopped the external experience, too, or what I would consider an external, that other people would notice. So, you know, there's a parallel to that in what we were talking about before in terms of people being in liminal states or subdued states and, um, and, and perhaps their own internal fears or paranoias that might make them far more susceptible to having experiences versus... Um, you know, walking through the dark and deserted home and you have no fear whatsoever and you'll see nothing at all perhaps then. Well, I was, when we went on that ghost uh, hunt thing in, in Liverpool uh, on Friday, uh, I noticed even bringing from the last one we did the year before, we were in the basement of the of the Astor Theatre there, which is an old, you know, legit theatre there in, in Liverpool. And I noticed that they, I had a, a, a magnetometer, uh, um, EMF meter that they're using. And at a certain point, we're in the dressing room, the old dressing room, which I guess have things happen in it. And um, Paul said, I mean, somebody said, well, a lot of stuff has happened here. Um, let's see what happens. And I said, it usually happens to the person that has a meter or something like that. And I said, I'll take it. And Paul said, I'm going to stand back. <laughs> but the funny thing is that when I took that meter and stood there, all I was was, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Let's see what happens. I don't disbelieve. I don't believe. Um, and nothing happened. So this time we go to this other place in the same town and all kinds of stuff happened. There was like voices on the, the whatever you call the ghost box that they had. Um, not unequivocal, but very indicative that there was some sort of subject-object response going on, or that we were affecting it in a way somehow subconsciously, telepathically, maybe the electronics. I think that very delicate electronics are affected just as much. It, yes. Actually, it's easier 
than like throwing things across the room because it takes only a very little tiny tiny bit of energy to affect it. Yeah. Um, so th that you know that's that's what was interesting to me. And the other fact was during this ghost thing, I still had maintained that if something happens, I'm going to be interested. And maybe maybe startled just because it's not unexpected, but not frightened. I won't freak out about it. I'll say, "This is very interesting. I would love to experience this in a normal state of mind instead of going oh, and running out of the room." <laughs> I want it. Nothing's going to hurt me. Nobody's been hurt by I guess people been slapped or whatever. But so what? That doesn't kill you. But my idea was just this completely neutral state of mind. I tried to stay as neutral as possible if, if things happen. And I don't know if it's because of my attitude or what, but more things tended to happen huh. with the Mactonies and the light and yeah, everything yeah. that I, I described. And if you listen to the other show, which I'll post before this one, you'll see what I was talking about. But a lot of very strange, non-scheduled, seemingly external things happened. And the fact that I had a neutral as possible attitude about it, I think, helped. I didn't want anything to happen. I did not want anything to happen. I was very strict with myself about that. And if, when something did start happening, it would be my attention is temporarily drawn to this thing that is happening. Then I'd go back to neutral until the next thing happened. I wouldn't be, oh my God, what? what? You know, I just, I didn't want to do yeah. that. So I don't know if that helped or hindered, but I thought at some point, and I didn't do this when I was there, try an experiment where I do come in all excited and really expecting and work myself up into an emotional lather somehow. Yes. Like yeah. 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 yeah and see how that would affect things and then go in with a completely then another time just say nothing's going to happen this is total crap this is you know it's a bunch of stupid people doing them and just try that mental space for a while but I, you don't get any chances to do that um, and that was my chance and my my own my first chance or my second chance was let's be neutral about right. it see what happens I, I don't know if that was because i did that or not but I saw things that I thought were pretty mundane, and I saw things that I thought probably weren't mundane. So, and that's the attitude I, came, I had coming out of it, too. I just said, these are almost unequivocal things, and they were exciting. I'd like to see more. I don't, I don't know what it proves, but it was interesting. Yeah. So, if you have something like you describe happening to you, not, not you describe your... your you think aliens are coming out of a ship or something yes. to take you. Yeah. How do you maintain a neutral attitude at that? Exactly, right? You're you're totally lathered in fear altogether. So I don't I don't think you can. And so But if you could if you were the Dalai Lama, yes. what would you see? <laughs> He'd just yeah. say he would just probably say, Here come some of my some of my friends. Let's see what they have to say. And when you think or about see nothing. Well when you think about the Emelchin yeah. case, right? And I think other cases where Thank you so much for telling me that that person who is entirely neutral and suddenly has these humanoids that jump on the wagon and he just thinks, you know, they're two, two Asian guys that have, for some reason, green skin on them. Um, <laughs> he seems to be rather nonplussed by the entire experience yeah. and is just going with the flow. So that, that's yeah. an example of that kind of individual. And I think those are fascinating cases when that happens. And, and I've got a question, though, about that concept of neutrality and, and even searching for the medium because, you know, Valet in that infamous... Um, discussion with Jerome Clark talks about, you know, inserting yourself in the phenomenon, yeah, yeah, being, right? Wanting being to interrupt it. And, yeah, and, and talking about how dangerous that is. And I guess I want to challenge that concept on one level, because when we think about this history of ghost hunting, UFO hunting, is there actually anything valid that comes out of that? And can we separate that concept of looking for evidence, 
because I don't think people find much at all when they go looking for evidence. Yeah, it just it's yeah. like Susan said about the stuff happens with your uncle. And I think there's something far more important about the discussion that is about the fact that things happen when people least likely expect it, are not prepared, or, or might be in total neutral spaces, or maybe other mental spaces as we talked earlier, on that suddenly that's when things happen. Yeah. Can you actually insert yourself in the phenomenon at all? Is that just an impossible discussion? Yeah, well, Jeff thinks so. He said that that, that is... Thing. And you tried this. I know, but I'm yeah. wondering, is that just an internal event? Because I think about my experiment that I did, and I got myself worked up into that lather of fear, where I was starting to see the alien in my head, and I could conjure it up at any point in time, and that started to create a fear response within me. That's when I abandoned the experiment. It, it seemed like things were manifesting in my mind, and I was wondering, okay, what am I doing to myself? I'm not going to look for something. I'm looking for something inside. I'm not looking externally anymore uh, mm -hmm. there. And I'm wondering, is that a failed approach, that concept of can we conjure versus the history of the phenomenon we know seems to be about people being startled by something when they were least expecting it. Yeah. And, it's a, and, and if you quote-unquote conjure, is that a different manifestation of, uh, of something completely different than coming around the corner and seeing a, yep. a ship floating next to the yep. highway. Yep. Well, that's a, that is a good question. I do believe we can conjure. I feel, though, that you have to know that you can do it. Like, you, you just, you have to know. It's not even a question of whether I believe I can do it. It's that I know I can do it. The concept of conjuring strikes me about notions of magic, uh, claiming power, uh, making manifest. Is that something that human beings have the capacity? And are they actually exerting a will or opening an invitation in some ways that opens that door to that other liminal world to allow whatever that external stimulus is to manifest there? Like, do you really think that human beings have that actual power and capacity to do that? Or is it more like the lamb, you know, meditations and, and, and the notions of these are things that I see inside my mind. It's the vision I've constructed for myself. Yes and yes. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> I, I was going to say basically the same thing. Yeah, okay, I'm not going to be prejudiced. Are, are, you, are they seeing the same things? Is that the same external stimulus oh, or is one totally different than the other? There's the big question. And I'm open to either or. Maybe yes, maybe no. Well, uh, one thing that uh, Jeff did say is when people try this, he said it doesn't happen when they expect. Uh, and it's never what they expect. Which is magic. That's magic. You can't you 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 can't control it to such a degree. It's no, no, always you, it's you, always the unexpected. You, you create an atmosphere where things might be more conducive. Exactly. Um, and and then you work at it yourself. I mean, if it's a personal thing, you work at it yourself. You're basically trying to get the universe to stop to get out of your way so you can do what you need to do. Mm -hmm. um, so communication think, yeah, tool, in it, my opinion. And in a lot of cases. In magic, you're trying to get yourself out of your own way so things can happen that need to happen. Yes. So I think that's offerings in somebody trying to conjure up something. Yes. That's <laughs> There we go. Because um, it just strikes me that the magic ritual, the incantation, is an act of power, is what that is. Like, that's an act of personal power and will. Like, you say, getting yourself out of the way, yes, on one hand, but on the other hand, I've got this entire book that I've written that has all of these different, you know, formula to the spell, to the ritual that I've constructed, and you must do X, Y, and Z, and imbue these drugs and have sex with that person and put myself into a state of mind to allow the vision to manifest. Yeah, none of, none yeah. of this and I would that. separate that very much from the, that manifestation of a vision, to me, strikes me as something that's totally internal, 
versus suddenly there's yeah. an external. If you conjure, that's there. coming all yes. from you, and, yeah, if you, yeah. and there, you can't you yeah. can't count on it because it's a, it's an internal experience. But, but we don't know that it could be co-creative. Yeah, I, I, my idea is somewhere in between, probably like like Susan's about to say, is that if you allow yourself to be open to something, what would be really interesting is if you allow yourself to be open to something, can you have a multiple witness? <laughs> I that believe. Would be a I test. believe so. Yeah, and it, I think that has happened as far as I know anecdotally, right? Mm-hmm. In a controlled way, where you. This is one of the things I want to do in a controlled way, where you tell everybody what you're doing, you tell you exactly what you're doing, and you get some results multiple times, then you send it out and see if other people can get that result. So um, that sounds like the Philip experiments? Yeah, the Philip experiment in, informs this quite a bit. It does. It absolutely does, and it's inspired my work that I'm doing now currently. Have you talked to any of the people who were involved originally? Yes, I have. Iris I've, Owen, I think you told me? Uh, no, no, no it was a younger more, guy. More recently, I talked to uh, Dr. Joel Wheaton, who was the one of the technical... Uh, he's a psychiatrist in Toronto, and he's still in practice. And, well, what are uh, we doing here? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> he's an interesting person himself, and he, he, was part, he was the technical supervisor for that experiment. Um, and, uh, and I had discussed with him creating an alien, and uh, we, we had a very interesting discussion about it, and he was able to give me some advice as to what they did. One of the things they did when they picked the Philip group, and they were pulling them out of the general population, but one of the one things they looked for is creativity. So they would ask the participants to pick a, child's, a children's story that they liked, and to read it out loud, and to act out one of the characters. Mm. And they were looking for someone who, or people that, that had the capacity to be playful, spontaneous, and childlike. And but, yeah, and a, an imagination yeah. that, yes. an imagination as in a child's imagination, like when I remember I was playing, I was, I was those people when I was playing. Yes, that I is exactly. I wasn't exa- playing a role, I was those people. That is exactly what they looked for, as well as also screening out any potential psychological or psychiatric issues amongst the people that they chose. Um, But that was one tip that he had given me in regards to if I wanted to do it as an alien. Doing it as an alien has a lot of ethical issues. Mm. So while my current work is inspired, it is not something I'm going to do, and it's for that reason that you had mentioned. What happens to someone who sees a, a humanoid? Um, I toyed around with some ideas like maybe we could conjure a friendly alien, one that we are in control of that will go home to his home planet when we tell him to, because there has to be a way to banish this thing. Yeah. The thing that I thought about is I don't want to create a group and try to do this and then someone go home and and, and, and then and, and then they're exactly and, and then they have they aliens crawling in their windows. Like a paranormal or, researcher that has stuff start happening. But, but that and that's what seems to happen all the time, yeah, doesn't so the, it? Right? Yeah, people so, get very involved emotionally, and then suddenly they're deconstructing. So to try and do this as as a, as a proper experiment, the way that Philip was done, there are some serious ethical questions if you're going to do it from a UFO perspective. Like that's something that I don't think that, that, that should be attempted without some serious forethought to the ethical questions that it's going to raise. Yeah, and the people in the group and what, what their yeah. psychological makeup is. Um, yeah. Some, uh, when I was, in, I said some irresponsible stuff in Roswell, I was with a, mm-hmm. with a group that was a bunch of Christians, basically faith-based, a mm-hmm. lot of them. And they said, we don't think you should be messing with things like that. 
and they went through a discussion, and when they got to the end, people looked at me, your turn, and I said, I'm going to say you think you should mess with stuff like that. And of course, I got these looks. Yeah. And I said, well, one, not with crazy, stupid people who are, who are uh, run off yeah. immediately uh, anything happens. And two, um, well, as related to it, here's my analogy. You don't, you don't send your mom to the moon. You send Neil Armstrong to the moon because he knows what the hell he's doing. Sure. He knows the risks sure. involved. He's yes. been trained and he knows the parameters. Yes. <laughs> so and, but, that it, kind of thing. but there's also the difference, too, between, and I, I think that we had brought it up, or Robert had brought it up before, as far as ghosts are concerned. People are more accepting of ghosts in one sense because they're humans or they're former humans. That's the popular story, yeah, yeah, okay. the DPH. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that filter is going to be what's a lot yes. of comfort. Yes. Which is what they did with Philip. They created this person that once lived, even though he was fictional, but it, it was someone that was a human. So there, you can identify with that. With the aliens, they're they're alien. You don't know what's going to happen with mm. them, and they are presented often as very scary. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying that yes, there, there's that to consider when even contemplating doing something like that is is yeah. how you're going to affect the psyche of now, other there was people. A, a sort of group we were moving towards that and the idea was it was a friendly like contact area space program. yes that you can send away i think that that if anyone's going to try this that's listening in it's important that the group understands and that there's a methodology in place before you begin to send the alien home he's got to go home yeah <laughs> did the doctor you were talking to explain why creativity like i'm thinking of the what's the um the only real study that's been done with uh, abductees and people who've seen UFOs there was like Tyler, Pope John, and oh, you mean, uh, Oculus? No, or not no, Oculus. prior to that. Don't remember. I don't remember. All I remember either. the one was with Sabadi and Richmond and Tyler. Yeah, yeah. So, and so a couple that, other people. And like. that's the one I'm thinking about because in there I, I went through the study and the results and the only real interesting thing that was there latched onto who is the witness was one they appeared to be synesthetes so people who experience synesthesia regularly that's our artist type and they seem to be prone to creativity yes so the skeptic will say well they're confabulists and seeing things in their mind why did that doctor think that it was important that creativity was a role uh, or, or characteristics of people that would be part of a participant in that i believe because in within parapsychological circles they had already noted that people that are seemingly prone to these types of experiences do tend to be very creative. They tend to be to have good imaginations. Not necessarily that they're fantasy prone, but in some sense, yes, that, that is true. They have good senses of imagination and creativity. And then you see this in the abductees too. Often there a lot of them turn to art to cope with their experiences yeah. or their writers or their musicians. I think you wanted fertile ground. Yes, yes. So that they, these are people like open to possibility and, 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 and to that create kind of imaginary because, zone. Yeah, because they were creating this narrative that, and true. building right. it, and 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 as they went along, so that they were looking for the people that could do that. So they kind of made a golem. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's yes. exactly yeah. what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. or a tulpa. Or guess, a tulpa. Yeah. 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 And out of curiosity, in talking with him about it, um, did he impart any interesting components? Because the Philip experiment is is a phenomenal one and it's a definitive one i've got my own take on it um but i'm curious to know uh, curious to know your take yeah, yeah curious to know what he uh thought about what they had achieved actually like thinking back on this that happened decades ago 
Uh, he had said that they had initially they had hoped to achieve an upful apparition, and that didn't occur. But the poltergeist activity that was recorded, that they actually they took the table that they had used, and some of the participants they went down to the university in Ohio, and, and they were able to demonstrate the wraps in a physics department. Um, he oh, felt, the one where they felt them under the table. Yes, they and they. Is that in the TV studio? That no, that, that, that was a different one. Okay. There was another one they went to um, uh, Ohio State University and they did it in the physics lab. So it was very well documented, and he absolutely believes that there was some sort. Sorry, of... they actually recorded real vibrations on the yes. table. Yes, yes, actual vibrations. In a fully lit studio, with everybody's a... hands visible. Yes, and in a physics lab in front of physicists. Now, what what energy was being produced? I don't. I, I can't say. I don't think anyone truly at this point can a hundred percent say. But it was there, and it was anomalous. So Wheaton felt that their work was very successful, um, although he felt that to create the full apparition, you would probably need like Buddhist monks, people that are able to get into that sort of a meditative state. Yeah, somebody that and, doesn't have uh, all those gates there that they're not even aware are there. Yes, and he had he had wanted me to sort of go like he had sort of tried to guide me to kind of go that route and to learn more about that and. And I thought that that's interesting, but what I want to do is more of a Western experiment with yeah. people that from a Western background. Like I, I, I appreciate what the Buddhists are doing, but I didn't think it would be very helpful to in this culture and in, in, in this culture and doing what we're trying to do, which is what they did with the the Philip experiment. They just literally pulled strangers together with various diverse backgrounds, and the only real thing that was holding them together was the fact that they were they had this sort of mindset of being very playful type people with good imagination and creativity. Yeah, and it took it took them a few tries to get the right mix of people. Yeah. They had a few people that kind of fell by the wayside, people they felt that weren't yeah. stable enough or whatever. Um, and like I said, I want to hear the bees. <laughs> Sorry, the wolf was on. Um, I forgot what I was going to say because the wolf came in. Uh, it, stable people? Yeah, it would yeah. be interesting to... to the, the, the rule I had for co co you know, coalescing any group for doing work is um, stable people that you trust. Um, maybe not even specifically anything else, but stable so they won't pull the group off in some weird direction or disrupt it with their own personal BS. And, um, uh, and, and trust. Everybody has to trust each other. And that's what they, they had in the Philip thing. I'm surprised they got it. It took them about eight or nine months before their they before really the group was coalesced. Yeah, before they were really, really together, and they were able to start producing the phenomena. Now, the interesting thing is that afterwards, uh, much with most of these types of groups, they a lot of them began infighting. Mm, um, yes. Yes. That the um, and then they wouldn't speak to anyone. Or they all had different versions, or they wouldn't speak to each other. So they, they had an implosion of the group. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Yes. Yes, they did. Um, now, I did not speak. There was a fellow by the name of Al Peacock, who was one of the um, participants, and he lived in St. Catharines, and he had gone to a couple of the ghost conferences and spoke with friends of mine. Um, and he confirmed that this was the case, that they had had this sort of uh, falling out for various reasons. What was the nature of it? Was it about controlling the nature of how they were describing Philip, or 
the experience of the phenomenon? Was it becoming more owning personal? Philip? Or owning Philip? Oh, yeah. It was more owning Philip, um, money, things of that nature. Mm, money? Think, uh, yes, because of course they were all wanting to sell their story ah. because it was, they were getting on television. Ah. So you, so you start. What I would say is ego engagement. As soon as the ego became fully engaged. Yeah, maybe that's the other one. It is ego, and also you know. Um, when the group is, well, the thing is, there was no defined end to that group's project, really. No. You'd either have to just, you'd either have to declare one, or I don't know what else you could do. Like, it, yeah. like if you went into this project with your eyes open, just say, look, when we get our results um, within one month after we are all agreed and we'll sign agreement, this group will be dissolved. Yeah. And nobody can sell their story and nobody at all. Yeah. That kind of thing. I think that might keep, hopefully that would keep the, be some sort of check on keeping the results a little, I don't know, pure or what, but more acceptable and also easily used by other people without all the fighting and I own this this idea or whatever. But it, it happens, it seems to. It, it always happens. And it, it's, it seems to be part of the phenomenon itself. I keep thinking I could control it. <laughs> I, I know I couldn't. You know? I probably couldn't even control it myself. I don't know what would happen. I think it's because it's chaotic nature. It's 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 I I subscribe to a lot of what Jeff Ritzman has to say in regards to the chaos and the anti structure yeah. that when and, and proximity to whatever it is tends to create this sort of situation where people infight and, and, and it creates mayhem in their lives. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way to get near it without you can't go, just like Malay said, I get to go next to the volcano, but most people are going to get blasted away by a blob of lava. Well, when you think of the dedicated scientists that go to the volcano, and many have died going to the volcano, but they're there to do their job, and they're completely passionate about it, and they'll work to save each other's lives along the way as they're kind of documenting something scientific that's yeah, credible it's not, there. It's, it's not concrete. messing with their emotions. That's right. And their inner lives. But what we're talking about is an entirely different animal. These are about emotional spaces that people have personal investment in. They're, they're not just conjuring. They're creating a, an altered universe, a life form that they're very particular and attached to. I don't see how those groups wouldn't implode in the first place there. Or how they wouldn't also start to even start to detach or unhook a little bit from reality and start to descend into right. more anti-structural spaces. Because I think anybody who's ever participated in any kind of group activity where you're dedicated to and I will define it this way as irrational or, or liminal spaces. Anytime you start doing that work, you as a group do one, I think, descend into groupthink, and then the other thing that happens is people start to break down. Uh, yes. I, I think that's almost an unavoidable part of it because it's not like you're measuring, you know, what's coming out of the volcano. You're measuring immaterial spaces and things that we don't even have language for. And I think the only... And becoming emotionally involved whether you watch or not. That's what I was going to say. That we get How do you so guard against that? Yeah. What's the solution to that? I, I don't think there is one because anytime I've seen those kind so of projects... So you want to screaming? I think most people do. Or they start <laughs> to lose their minds or things start to fall apart or their obsessions start to lead them to think that they are in contact now or are possessor of or the channel for. Um, I think that's unavoidable. And maybe that's telling us something about the nature of these paranormal investigations for people who want to experiment 
in those, they should be prepared for their own lives to start to spiral. deconstruct yeah. and spiral. Yes. Because that is the nature. What they're pursuing, and there's some golden rules about trying to find the answers to things, whether it's the Holy Grail or what have you, right, is don't pursue. You continue to pursue, you will drive yourself mad. And I think that's a kind of a historical truth in, in some ways. And I, and I haven't seen, you know, has anybody seen any paranormal well, experiment then, that is yeah. one where people literally are still disciplined about it and then, not emotionally affected? Well, the, the next wow. step after that might be, is there a way to do it where you don't approach it directly head on? Where it's... What, what can I call it? An epiphenomenon of what you're doing. You realize that that's what you're doing, but you do something else. You know what I mean? So you're not directly pursuing it. It's almost like an afterthought mistake over at the side. Yes. And and I think is Does that what, make any sense, Robert? It, it makes can, sense can you to me. Can give me an analogy? Like, what, what would that look like? Or an example? Like, say, the UFO I, piece or, okay, the, or contacting the humanoid. I am doing a project where I'm tracking deer in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also, you know, I will uh, have people off looking at other things and looking at the environment and having cameras and all that, but we're looking for deer. But you're not... But in the back of my mind, I know we're kind of looking for other stuff too, but don't concentrate on that what you're doing. Concentrate on the damn deer. Yes. And look, try and keep the UFO stuff or whatever paranormal out of your mind. Right? How about That's this? That's a very rough how about How about this? Look at looking for weather phenomena when in reality you're looking for the strange plasma balls. Okay. Or something, it's, or something it's, of that nature. So that's sort of like I, I would, I would say that's tricking the trickster, because I can, as I consider <laughs> oh, then this, really get mad. I consider it the cosmic trickster. No, they might get mad, but are we? How how far are we going to invest to pursue this? The only thing I could suggest, if you're going to pursue it, is to keep ego out as much as possible and to ground yourself and realize, like, take breaks from this. There are times when I I do walk away because I know I'm starting to lose myself into it too much too much and then i have to walk away i ground myself i go out into nature i hold my rocks i think about something else i watch yeah. a comedy yeah. I, I think about the people i love and i don't think about it i take those mental yeah. breaks yeah. often because otherwise i know it, it will suck me down that route mm -hmm. I, I go flying because that completely takes my soul and my concentration completely into something that's Obsession. Obsession and completely away from this other thing. And people's lives have been ruined. They have been. I get obsessed with flying for a while, which seems to help. Yeah. You know, one of the things, just thinking about the Philip piece that just kind of struck me, is that, and I'm thinking even Sasquatch hunters here as well, too, or even ghost hunters, they're very involved in the personality. Uh, there's a specific identity that they've attached themselves to, and maybe that's yes, a way. I know. The, a lot of them start looking like Bigfoot. Well, well, the humans seem to want to bind to, and it's like so the Bigfoot person who believes that Bigfoot family is coming to visit them, and they're leaving food out for them, and they're having yes. conversations in the Blueberry woods. Bagels. They, they, yeah, they know who they are, what they look like. They've got personalities to them. Philip had a very replete history. Anybody who does Ouija board contacts, they they kind of define and write an entire history for that individual. Yeah. It seems like the emotional content comes from. The, the witness or that pursuer, that investigator, wanting to define something much very clearly. It's not abstract. It's got personality. It's something I can latch on to. I can hold it, think about it. That way, maybe out of that, that's where the emotion comes out of. That's a good point. You know, that that's a that, really good point. As opposed to point. thinking about something that is purely abstract and just looking for that abstract content, but mm. it doesn't seem 
that's the nature of it. The nature of it is, and so that's why I challenge the Philippines, is Philip manifest because they manifested Philip inside themselves, you know, and everything they saw and felt and experienced oh, I, and I collaborated yeah. on is a, a part of that internal right, manifestation. Right. I, I don't think the point of that experiment is that they contacted anything. The right. point of the experiment is that their intention created things that people say are external. That was, that was the exact point. Well, I guess my question is, is though, how external were they? Had they only convinced themselves of those externalities? Because I, that's the first time I've heard about the, um, the table piece in the physics one. I haven't read that or run across that Ohio State piece yes. that you mentioned. I just because I, I did a lot of Philip reading for a period and didn't encounter that. What I did encounter was a group of physicists who came to, and I don't know if it was the Philip people specifically or if it was the Toronto Laughing Society. Do you know that group? No. Because no. <laughs> no. they were a group who were also into the table tipping and having this kind of laughter phenomenon piece, but what was documented was that the tape, even though these were huge, heavy, enormous tables and people only had fingers on them, it seemed like very effectively, collaboratively, they were able to do that tipping just through the slightest of movements. And I think we know from different kind of, you know, parlor tricks that that's well within the realm of possibility. And, and so in my mind, I had kind of grouped Philip in many ways to, you know, similar kind of Ouija board constructions where that group of people who are moving the planchette, even though it's only one finger and maybe there's even six fingers that with the lightest of touch on it, at the end of the day, they all know how to spell and they all know how to make sentences and they're going to write it together. Yes. Right? So that, that to me is where I see that kind of collaborative component of, well, we're going to make manifest this external reality, but truth be told, it's us. We're total directors and we're in control of all of it. And so I would question whether or not that external manifestation was there. So I'd be really interested in looking at that Ohio study to actually know that there was something physically generated. Like well, there that. was something that was physically generated and it was recorded. Um, I, I, there is a paper, I believe, if I have it, I will send it to you. If not, then Dr. Wheaton is still in, uh, in practice here in the, Toronto. Because the TV studio one, that was bogus. Yeah. Right. Like that was like, at least from my mind, like in well, the, anything well, that we do in the dark and, and play around with, like some of these other psychic societies right now that are believing they can manifest kind of imagery on on seal film cameras. They're not going through any of the standard kind of control mechanisms that would be normally put through to actually prove that, yeah, this is total and external manifestation, because in all the tests they're doing, they're allowing the handlers to handle and do what they want and do things in the dark and. It's just it's a lot of you know smoke and mirrors that way. It doesn't bring that kind of real piece to it. And I remember what the TV studio was fully lit like a TV studio. No, that's not my understanding of it. They were in the dark. Well, if you watch if you watch the the, the filming, or dim lighting. I mean, it, it 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 there is that possibility that it could have been staged. Like you can't you can't rule that out. Right. But what happened in the physics lab is different, and that was told to me by Dr. Wheaton. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I definitely want to look at that because I, I had not heard that at all. So, I because when I do shows with people I know, I do not, and especially now because I'm on vacation, I don't write out lists of questions. Occasionally, I'll write out, let's talk about this stuff, and I have like five or six things, and we fill up two hours, no problem. Because that's just how that, that's just the way it is. Um, do you want to talk any more about the book? I think I, I, I think you both 
You talked about what was in the book on, on, on my show, right? Yes. Yeah. So this isn't really a, a discussion on reframing the debate. Although really. The only thing we've been talking about is reframing the debate. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's and true. sort of taking what some of these essays are in there and, and taking them a little bit further because they have to be. I mean, that, I look at the book as like a start, like a jumping off place. You know, it's for me and for everybody in there. Well, we touched a little bit on some of the pieces for me that were important in my essay, which was about you know the, the visit to Ultima Thule, going to the altered reality, going to the liminal zone, and that in the liminal zone, the reality is, is anti-structural, and that the nature of the experience is surreal and, and metamorphic, and it has very profound effect on individuals, just as any hallucinatory experience does, and that they seem to be very much tied to experiences of trauma, even prior to the witness experience and or being traumatized by the experience itself. So those were a lot of the kind of the important parts for me. But what came out of researching that essay was the work around Donald Hoffman and his kind of allowance, because the part before you turned off the recorder and we were talking about, you know, why do cameras not record what people see? Hoffman seems to have an answer for that, you know, because a camera right. just records light and, and that's all it can record. A human being is a perceiver. It's an interpreter. It's doing something different than what cameras do. And interpreters, uh, you know, perceptual interpreters have to codify things inside their minds. They'll create different edges, textures, depending on that individual, depending on how creative or artistic or if they're a synesthet. The way that they see reality is going to be very different from the next person beside them. And as Hoffman says, there's no such thing as a public object. Everybody sees reality completely different. But what Hoffman made allowance for, for me, was that there very well could be an external reality that is beyond our perceptual capacities, that is a, a different, you know, alien, that even defines it as that, right? That there's other conscious agents in the world that are having totally alien experiences that we can't participate in, and even their perceptual capacities, or how they experience reality, would be totally alien to our minds. And I thought, in his theory, he makes room for that opportunity for human perceivers perhaps to intersect with things that do come from ultimate Thule, that come from that place beyond borders, that given the right circumstance, right situation, that perhaps they will be able to witness something completely unique and something that cameras will never record it. And certainly it's very much tied to who the perceiver is. And we talked about the co-creation theory, that that perceiver is bringing things to the dance you as well. You can do that. that. That's right. That allows you If you meditate enough or take psychedelics, you can do that. And, and, and you know, and when you think about the meditation psychedelic experiences, right, and the creation of giant mushrooms too, and, and those kinds of notions of how people together in groups can create realities on their own. You know, I think about those things, and what I'm most interested now in the UFO experience is, can we categorize witness experiences? Can we define them in different ways? What's a shared hallucination? What's a shared external reality? What's an individual internalized experience? And can we think about paranormality from these other modes then, and other ways of kind of labeling them, just so we can get a little bit closer maybe to the external experience, or help to define the nature of a witness a little better. Right, or it, it define the nature of the internal experience and how that is an approximation of that, the approximation of reality as, as Hoffman calls it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what is that external, you know, I don't think we know what external reality is. We have instruments that tell us, give us a ghost of what it is, I believe, and allow us to predict certain normal things that will happen with some, uh, accuracy, but not for the, some of the things we're talking about here. Um, and I don't think, how rational can you be about the irrational 
before it, 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 it is the wall so high between the rational and the irrational that you have to deal with them on their own terms. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, if you think about the history of human sensory experiences, and if Hoffman's right, we've evolved to have the senses that we need just for our survival, right. then the concept of the ir irrational doesn't really play too much a role in terms of the act of survival. Right. We've got what we need and we see what we need in order to survive. There is tree, I make stick, I kill animal, build fire, eat, I'm well, and I survive, right? That's the nature of things. But when we think of the role of irrational external reality, history is also replete with that too. The shaman's visions, um, yes. you know, the internal experiences, uh, these things have helped to redefine culture, uh, excite culture, push culture in new directions. Right. So there's certainly uh, perhaps even a natural role for those irrational experiences mm -hmm. as part of our culture. And that's the argument I make in my essay is, is that right. we've denied those pieces. You know, what used to be the shaman's vision that would be celebrated and lead a community is now marginalized as that's an irrational experience and you're mad and we need to walk that person up and stop listening to those things. And the entire community will even rally against, you know, that police officer or purveyor of rational morality when they've had experiences and that, that's why I use them as the example because right. we're discounting that story altogether instead of seeing that as a vibrant vital narrative sure it's anti-structural sure it's irrational but it's dynamic it's creative it's what shifts yeah. things for us yeah seeing it as part of you know it's the it's the left brain of our right brain culture right? yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely and necessary without that we stay stagnant right as a yeah, culture exactly. we need that, that dynamic pieces yeah Imagination pulls us forward too. You imagine something. This is a Western occult thing. If you think of yeah. something in your mind and pull yourself towards that imagined future, it becomes the actual future. Yeah. Yes. And uh, but that's not a. Well, you know what? According to Diana's book, maybe that's not such of a big wall anymore. No, because I think and I haven't read it yet, but it sounds like well, I haven't either. She hasn't finished the book, but it sounds like <laughs> she's following that tract of what the scientist or fertile imaginative mind creates in their mind does become our future technologies. Mm -hmm. Has it not yes. always been oh, this well, way? Oh, well, yeah. Right? I think I talked to her and she yeah. used that example. Yeah. It's like somebody thought of a cell phone. Yes. And that, that was a magical act. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how much you want to say that, I mean, it, 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 at the very base, that is a magical act. Yeah. So, and that's why or I love, love Bruce Wensing's concept, and I use that in the essay too, was the notion of the visions people have of UFOs across history are an invitation. An invitation to surpass our current technological capacities for transit, you know, for how do we move through the air. And so the visions and images that we've had over time that continually to be more and more advanced and more and more in line with the next technology we're inventing. Yeah. See, so you can look at it as, is it an invitation from the sky or is it an invitation that even originates in the perceiver of yeah. the mind? Or an know, artist individual. Yeah. Exactly. That, Star Trek. That's right. Tricorders, yep. they're still yep. trying to make tricorders. Yep. There's, a, there's a contest now, I think, DARPA trying people to build tricorders. Oh, good. But communicators, I mean, that's yep. that, that that's yep. the thing. I mean, people thought the holodeck. That kind of thing. Yeah, the holodeck. That's yeah. all I have to say. They were all in the holodeck. <laughs> yeah. Too. How much did that go into Oculus Rift? That even yeah. imagine uh, the holodeck. I don't know. So the human imagination seems to be replete with those pieces, and just to bring us all back to Philip Land again. <laughs> so then are the manifestations of the things that we make in the world that are true, that are ours, actually just pure products of imagination, pure places that we, we conjure and think and work together in teams long enough until what we think was impossible 
becomes a reality. Also. Yeah, you know they're talking that about is... this shit down at, at Tesla and Elon yeah. Musk and all that. Absolutely. Of course they are. And Apple and all those people. But and that is that posts. is what the Owens were trying to prove. That was the point of that the George Owens hypothesis that it was through imagination and creativity that this experience is created and manifested in the outer world. And they seem to have some success. Though the ultimate goal was never achieved. Because they wanted actual manifestation. They wanted a full apparition. It's asking a lot. Yeah. That, that seems like more energy than they could come, come up with um, artificially. Uh, I don't know if uh, energy is the right word for okay. it. I don't, um, I, well, I don't know. Mental energy? Effort? Uh, uh, maybe they didn't believe they could. Maybe maybe they felt they could go only so far. I don't mm. know. I feel that a key component is belief. And beyond belief. You have to know, and you have to know that you've, it's already done. It's a done deal. It's happened. Right? Oh, my God. That, that's my... When people say, how do you do things? And I said, my... My model is what I learned in occult practices. Imagine something finished in the future. You just have to get yourself to it. You just imagine it as a reality. It's like, you, look, it's, yeah. it's already there. I just have to find my way to it. It's if you know you can do it. If you know it's possible, it's possible. I, this, um, there was a, be kind of specific. There was a radio lab that was very interesting to me in regards to, it has perhaps implications to this. Uh, and it was in regards to a doctor in the 1950s who um, was working in a maternity ward. And he was looking for uh, better ways to anesthetize these women who were in advanced labor stages and to sort of give them better pain relief than what was available at the time. So he started exploring hypnosis. And he had some good success with it, these females that he was hypnotizing when they were in childbirth. And... Uh, what happens is, is, to kind of make a long story short, is that he decided he was going to um, he was going to try to do stuff with hypnosis with other patients, and he ended up in this uh, area of the hospital where there was this uh, young person who was suffering from uh, untreatable skin condition. Uh, he didn't know it was untreatable, but he hmm. felt he could give some relief to this this patient. Well, what happened is, is he ended up hypnotizing this young person, and they ended up becoming like all these skin lesions, and there's photos of this. This was very well documented, and there's a still record of it with the Royal Society in London for medicine, that this young man was cured. And so he thought he, that this was a big breakthrough. So he, he thought perhaps he could cure others, because of course when, when this came... This actually made local news because what happened is, is that this young man was suffering from something that was incurable. And the Royal Society said, what you did was impossible. So naturally, other people wanted to, to sort of get cured by him, and, and they, would, they tried, and, and he tried, and, uh, and he was never able to do it again. And he reasoned, eventually... He, he event Yes, which we see in, in magical terms as well. And parapsychology. And parapsychology. And he later went on to uh, leave that branch of medicine, and he studied psychiatry, and he wrote a book about all his experiences, because, of course, this is very, very well documented. And he finally reasoned that the reason he could never do it again is because the authority figure, the Royal Society of Medicine, told him, it was, this isn't, what you did was impossible. Right. It, there has to be another reason. It couldn't be your hypnosis. It couldn't be because you hypnotized this young person and they felt that you, being an authority, they truly believed you were going to do it and you truly believed you could do it. So it was done. So you're saying he lost his conviction? Yes. And he felt that in the end, that's why he could never do it again. 
was because he just because he doubted himself because an authority told him it could not be done. An authority who he took stock in because that's how he'd always taken stock. Exactly. That's how. He, that's so what was thing. once possible based on personal belief or creativity and yes. imaginings was thwarted in a kind of concrete manner and that ended his capacities. Yes. So, I mean, this has implications not only towards like a placebo effect, but perhaps to what we're studying as far as what people are willing to authorize and believe is true versus what they, they just will not accept. Yeah, so my, my neutral yeah. attitude was probably wrong. Well, maybe well, not. Well, maybe you were just you were just allowing well, things yeah. to happen. Well, think, well, maybe I'm like I was, you know, hijacking my own skeptical attitude just by being neutral. So that neutral is more believer than being skeptical. Yeah. But there's also the idea that um, where, like, uh, when Geller went around and got uh, tested by all these labs, um, and also he says this no matter what you think. I got a huge argument. Why do you believe it's bullshit? He's, he's fake stuff. And it's like, yeah, he had. But he's also gone into a lab setting where it absolutely is. As far as I can tell, no way to fake the stuff. And it was documented uh, and written about, and pictures were taken, and scientists were working on it. So it's like, look, I think he just messes with people when he can't do it. But his his idea and some other people is like, you kind of have to have that belief component, or it doesn't, the, the, the condition doesn't exist for the manifestation of these things. Um, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. I mean, uh, do you have to get everybody to believe before the experiment works and before the, the efficacy can be... Because if, that, if that's what you have to do, I don't think you can ever do that. You, well, all, you only have believers believing and non-believers not seeing any evidence. Well, but, there, but there's the key that they had for the Philip experiment right, is because right. they were pooling from different types of people with all sorts of different backgrounds. They wanted a good mix. But at the, at the one requirement that they all had was creativity and imagination and the ability to be playful. Right. That was the, that was the yeah, one thing, even, thread yeah, that held them all yeah, together. That's not even a believer thing. That's just an attitude. Exactly. It has nothing to do with the efficacy of whatever. It's just So it's the same like, attitude of, I know I can do this. It's right. done. Yeah. It's happened. It's getting very noisy. I think we have two hours. Do we want to talk about uh, more, or continue, or uh, have some drinks? How about we can? How about we continue another time? All right, we will. We can do it by Skype. It's not nearly as fun as this way, but um, no, this was fun. these words because they're written on my face Like they were carved in stone that time cannot erase What secrets lie beneath an awful shade of blue In a place of reckoning I keep returning to And we return back to the place where words belong In an awful shade of blue to an awful shade of blue 
to creeping dust. 